to our passage in Colossians, where we're uh, slowly making our way through a few verses at a time. So we're going to be Colossians 13 through 19. In that, in that uh, gospel passage, um, I think it's funny when we read that passage and the leaders of the synagogue is so indignant about keeping the rules that the, it, it's, it just reads very funny when he says, the Sabbath is not for this. Come some other day. Come some other day to be healed, but not the Sabbath. Um, I think it's possible for us to lose our focus and focus on the wrong things also. Uh, so these were lection, these, the other two, the readings are lectionary passages, and then this Colossians is out of, out of step with the lectionary, yet has lots in common as well, because we're going to be talking about um, the keeping of the Sabbath or keeping of, of different traditions, and we could have a focus on keeping a tradition and lose sight of what our re- real mission is. Let's pray, and we'll get started. Let your continual mercy, O Lord, cleanse and defend your church, and because it cannot continue in safety without your help, protect and govern it always by your goodness. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Well, have you ever experienced something, um, something significant, and then had it doubted about whether your experience was really true or not, whether it was really authentic, simply because it didn't look like someone else's. Now, there are objective experiences where these, things, these doubts don't come in. For instance, like a wedding. You may have had a very traditional wedding, like in a church with people, and you had bridesmaids and groomsmen, and actually a pastor and that kind of stuff, and, and you got married. But you may have friends who got married on the top of a mountain with no one around, but uh, somebody who got a, something off the internet and is marrying them. So looking way different. Or maybe that friend uh, stopped in Vegas and got married by Elvis. So maybe those experiences look way different, but there's not a doubt. Like they don't doubt that you're married, and you don't doubt that they're married. When these objective things that take place, these objective experiences, those are easy enough. But when it comes to the subjective thing, I think we can start like putting an emphasis or somebody else can put an emphasis on their experience and therefore we doubt our own. Um, this, is, this is what we're going to look at. So God in this passage I think is teaching us that God objectively sent Jesus to die on the cross to pay our debt of sin which was made known to us by the law so that we might experience new life in Christ and freedom from the demands of the law. So I'm not sure of any like new revelation you're going to receive in this passage. These are kind of well-worn grooves for us. But uh, this is the beauty of turning the page and we just continue one step after the other and walk through a book so whether we find this, um, there, whether there's something new in here for us or not, we're going to uh, look at it. So the first thing we're going to see is it, it, we're going to look at how do I experience this faith in Christ. 
So if you will, let's look beginning in chapter 13. It says, we're, we're still in chapter 2. It doesn't have 13 chapters. We're going to go to the 13th verse. And we're going to begin there. It says, and you who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So, Paul enjoys this drawing out a paradox uh, of God triumphing over his foes. Maybe it's through, uh, the, maybe it's triumphing over the strong through weakness. Or maybe it's triumphing over the wise through foolishness. Here, the Roman soldiers and the Jewish leaders would have thought that as they put Christ to death on the cross, that they put an end to his preaching and the turning of people to the loyal, away from their loyalties to them, because and, and instead of loyalties to him. So once we put him to death, surely those loyalties will come back to us. And they made a sign that said, King of the Jews, and hung it on the cross above Jesus' head in a way of mocking him. And this is a way of protest. Uh, in our world we walk around with signs and protest things. This is a way of mocking him and putting up here the King of the Jews and hanging the sign above his head. And it was a way to emphasize this king we're putting to death and we who are the rulers and the keeper of the faith... We are the ones who are really in charge, and this guy is not. But this says, this passage says, Paul's saying in 13, he says, When you were dead in your trespasses and then circumcision of your flesh. So this, this is when you were dead in your sins. Again, this uncertain, we, within the last couple of weeks we've talked about this uncircumcision of the heart. Where this heart is dead, and it needs revived, and it needs enlivened by the Holy Spirit. So, if it were not for God, uh, we would we would not love Him. We would not know we we would know He exists. But chapter one of Romans, uh, like if you got friends who think they're atheists, the, the Bible says there are none. That everyone knows that God exists. So we would have known Him in that way. We would not have revered him and loved him because we were at enmity, the Bible says, with him. Because we were dead in our sin, and sin can't reside with holiness, there was this enmity or this division between us and God. He was not our friend waiting for us to come to him in that sense. We were his enemy. And it's by his doing that he circumcises the heart. He makes us new by regeneration by the Holy Spirit. So these are the things that we have talked about. And then we did just sing about it as well uh, in this How Sweet and Awful is the Place. And this is by Isaac Watts is the um, hymn writer from mid, whatever, 1670s is when he was born died in like 1748 or something like that. So this was from a long time ago, but I, I think he beautifully captures the truth of the gospel 
And where he says, "'Twas the same love that spread the feast that sweetly drew us in, else we had still refused to taste and perish in our sin." And so the result, and the result of him drawing is that we, it's that other verse that he, uh, Bob Coughlin, as it was leading, had us repeat. While all our hearts and all our songs join to admire the feast, each of us cry with thankful tongues, Lord, why was I a guest? And if you, are, if you are a believer in Jesus, and you believe the scripture, not me, but the scripture that says, you were uncircumcised in your heart, but God, out of his love for you, he circumcised your heart, he regenerates you, brings you into new life, and brings you into the family. If that describes you, there is somebody you know and love who that does not describe. And what is your question? Lord, why was I a guest? Why me? Why not this person? And this is, and, and thankfully, we... So we don't know these answers. And in and just, you know, without without the proof of scripture, if we say, I'm I'm the one who has chosen to follow him, but the person sitting beside me didn't, drill down on that, and why is that? Well, that I made a right decision and they just didn't. So it's all about me. Well, the truth is, once we understand the scriptures and they're open to us. The reality is, I would not have chosen him had he not chosen me first. So, then I just stand in awe and amazement because I know of the wretched sinner I am, yet he chose me anyway. So, we stand in amazement, not in anger, but not in anger that he didn't choose the everybody or the next person. But we stand in amazement that he chose us. It's what the hymn writer Isaac Watts says. Paul is saying that very thing, that it was not you, but it was God. And he has said this before, we talked about this before, but now we're on verse 13, he's saying again, you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Then he says, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all the trespasses, all our trespasses. So, it is through what he has done, making us alive together in him by the Holy Spirit, and then through the blood of the cross, that he has canceled this debt. Verse 14 says, is that uh, 14 says, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. But what Paul's talking about here is the law, the law of the Old Testament. And it's only through its legal demands that we knew we had sin. The record of debt of sin, Jesus nailed to the cross and put it to death. Now, at the cross, the, uh, the Jews... And the Roman authorities thought they had triumphed over Jesus. This they're willing to celebrate because finally he is put to death and he won't be drawing people away from their loyalties to us. But God says, 
that it was actually through this death of Christ on the cross, the blood of the cross, that the rulers and authorities were disarmed and left to open shame. If you had your, if you had your uh, fingers or a marker in your Bible and want to flip up back to our passage in Luke, which was Luke 13, 10 through 17, Verse 17 says, As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at the glorious things that were done by him. All his adversaries were put to shame, where Jesus heals and brings truth and a correction to their blindness, where they're so concerned about the keeping of the law that they miss the purpose of the law, which was to increase love for God and love for one another. They were blinded to that fact. They thought that they had victory over Christ on the cross, but Paul is saying that God was celebrating then this final victory. So we just read about a, a small victory in this healing, but later at the end of Jesus' ministry, and says it's death, that's death on the cross, it's on this death on the cross which appears as if Christ is defeated, as if God is defeated. That Paul is saying, God's celebrating a victory over his adversaries, and he has put them to public shame right there. These authorities that may try to overtake you or your life in this day and age, they too have been disarmed at the cross. To this we say amen, that they have no rule over you in the spiritual realm. This law kept the Gentiles from being a part of God's people. Because the law, the law was for the Jews. And, and for them, the law condemned them for not keeping the law. So this is the condition that the law had on the people who are hearing this message it produced this record of debt, but that record has no power over you at this point because it was canceled and nailed to the cross. And I think this becomes a beautiful passage for us in the here and now so that you are no longer who you were. You're no longer defined and controlled by who you were or this record of debt. This record of debt has been canceled. And it was nailed to the cross. Jesus put an end to that. So your new identity is not who you were and how you racked up this record of debt. But your new identity is in who you are in Christ. That you are a son or daughter of the king. You are no longer identified by your sin but by your savior. Paul says in Romans 8 that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is none. Has your heart been circumcised is the question I think we need to ask at this point. And once we come to this passage, once we come to this verse, has your heart been circumcised? Have, have you been broken over your sin to find your comfort only in Jesus? He now calls you this son or daughter. He was aware of your sin, and he's paid that debt. 
He, he brought you in despite that badness that you had. He's, he is aware of your sin. He canceled that, brings you in, and calls you a son or daughter of the king. And then you're also a co-heir with Jesus. So, in those two verses, it's, or whatever that was, we, we've laid out then the, how, how is, do I experience faith? This is the experience we have. It's about what he has done. He circumcised our uncircumcised heart, brings new life into us, and brings us into the family. So, I ask a question. We're going to look at two other questions. First one is, is my experience authentic if I don't keep the Old Testament law? Or the Old Testament rituals, if you will. So, let's look at 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or new moon or Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So, how do I live out my faith is, this, is the question. This, and this can be hard to discern when we just open uh, the Bible or even as we're hearing many messages from those who call themselves Christians, how do I live out my faith? Well, we can hear lots of different things. But the bottom line is if someone is leading you to some particular kind of piety or devotion that doesn't directly lead you to Christ, if it becomes Jesus plus something, then rest assured what they are peddling is another gospel. It's a different gospel, something you need to be weary of and stay away from. And if you're spiritually mature enough, you can correct. But if you're not in the place to correct it, at least run from it. Some people in our day seem more spiritual, if you will, as they remember the festivals of the Old Testament, or maybe they employ diets inspired by Old Testament writings. So, um, you invite me for dinner, and I come to your house, and, and uh, you have labored and prepared your, uh, a meal for us to share, and you say, I have some pork roasts for you. And I say, well, I, I, don't, I don't eat pork. Because in the Old Testament, it was forbidden. It was an unclean food. But thank you, I'll have a little salad. Well, okay. And I, people do that with us for different things sometimes. <laughs> and you're like, just how about just eating the food? Um, and of course, if you, whatever you're offering me, chances are good I'm going to eat it. So don't, do not hesitate to invite me to your house and cook me dinner. I will eat whatever you want to make. Because I am freed, and I am freed in Christ. And that was the point of this, that there are Old Testament rituals, and when, but those kinds of conversations go on, and they go on in your, this is, these are not somewhere else kind of conversations. These are conversations, I have these conversations with people. But because they, oh, and like, if, I'm, if I made that, if I made the pork roast, I don't know about you, but if I made that pork roast on my grill, I'm telling you, that would take a lot of restraint to turn down. But I've tasted it, I know. Now, if you never tasted it, I guess whatever, no big deal. But no, and those those people who for you're on this spell where, and maybe you're in that right now. You don't eat bread. You got these beautiful new rolls that just came out of the oven, and you're just going to refuse those. <sighs> I say, 
bless you, yes, you appear way, way more spiritual than me because I'm going to eat it. That's all I understood. Well, and I'm not necessarily, you know, this is, I'm not condemning this, and there is a sense in which if, if you want to do some exercise of some sort, and even if it's inspired by the things in the Old Testament, and that can be fine as long as you're like not saying, you need to do this too because your faith doesn't look like mine, which that's the thing that he's addressing here. Uh, these festivals and special celebrations, they were simply meant to point toward Jesus. Those were the shadows, Paul's saying. Paul says those are the shadows, but the substance belongs to Christ. So don't be distracted, he's saying. Don't be distracted by the pointers and miss what it is that they're pointing to. Paul's making it clear that these festivals and the food and the drink regulations were about the ceremonial law. And so... This term law refers to three different types of law in the Old Testament. It refers to the civil law, it re- refers to the ceremonial law, and it refers to the moral law. And now the, the civil law, uh, you know, that, so that's law for those people in that time and that day and that age. So that's done, and that too is even fulfilled in Christ, I assume. But the ceremonial law, all the, the washing of the dishes and all the rituals and the washings of hands and all those things that you had to do and only the priests coming into the temple, into the Holy of Holies and all those, all the ritual that was pointing to Christ who is the Holy of Holies, once He has come, the rituals go away. So the ceremonial law is fulfilled in Christ. So Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law but to what? Fulfill it. He has fulfilled the law by who he is. So, this, um, those, those things that were pointing to Christ, we don't want to get those confused because those things in that day and age, they were simple guides for your daily life and to influence your worship so that you were looking to this being fulfilled actually in Christ, but if you are going through though these maybe mundane things, but your day is filled with the way you go about things was set by ceremonial law, it's to affect ultimately what you're looking at. Well, you're to be looking forward and pointing the, the, the people to something greater to come. That, so I, the moral law and the, or the ceremonial law and then the civil law then are fulfilled in him. The moral law still stands. And if you, you want to think Ten Commandments here. But, and, and as Jesus points out, it's really not in letter, but in, in, uh, in the spirit of, that, of, of the moral law. And Jesus points that out as he, in his exposition of the Ten Commandments, essentially, in the Sermon on the Mount of Matthew 5 through 7. That you re, you, you re, if you're feeling pretty good about your piety, if you're feeling like, oh, Jesus has to be smiling on me. I've been so good lately. Then read Matthew 5 through 7, read the Sermon on the Mount, and see if you can still stand. So, the reality where all this law was, the ceremonial law was actually fulfilled in Jesus, I would, I would, I would contend that there's an element to which the moral law is also fulfilled in Jesus. Because if you read that sermon, you will recognize that no one can keep the moral law. No one. Not some, not a few. No one can keep the moral law to 
in its entirety. Well, so, okay, there's one. He was Jesus. He's the one preaching. So, in that sense, the moral law becomes fulfilled in him as well. But that doesn't mean it is abrogated and it doesn't stand. He says he came to fulfill it, not to abolish it. So, um, because of this passage and because of this warning, uh, there are different people with different takes on some of the different traditions that uh, the church calendar that we embrace. Um, there is the, the admonition is you do not have to uh, become the Jew in order to become the Christian. So in, in the very general sense. So you don't have to worry about obeying that festival or, or keeping that festival or obeying this food law or drink law because those things pointed to Jesus is what this point is. But because of this passage, some will say, like for us, it is wrong to practice that Seder meal in the spring, say, before Easter. Well, we recognize that we don't practice the Passover, that Jesus is our Passover. We, we say this every week. Christ, our Passover has been sacrificed for us once for all upon the cross. Well, we recognize that. I have no problem with what we do and how we do it, in that we are not going back to uh, practice this in order to gain favor or merit with the Lord. We recognize where that has come from. We, we do this to learn history and appreciate the fulfillment of these things. So we can read this so harshly then that whatever, um, like the church, back to the church calendar, as it celebrates particular days for different reasons... Is that even right? Or should we say this is not right? We don't do this. Well, I, th I think that in this case, I think this is one of those things where we have freedom to do this. We do have to have a right understanding that this is not gaining us favor with, with the Lord. We do understand that this, that like for instance, this Passover was fulfilled in Jesus as John saw Jesus for the very first time. He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So we, we recognize Jesus as that fulfillment. So I have no, but we're not, we're, we're not presenting that as you must keep this, you must keep this festival with us or you have no part of us or, you know, you're, you're, you're not saved or what have you. So it's the demand of somebody else to keep the uh, rules which you have chosen to do. It's kind of like the diet. You can choose to have a, uh, eat vegetables only or whatever that was that, um, Joseph, whoever that was, Daniel. It's the, oh, it's the Daniel diet. That is what I I did hear. So that was a. Is that still a thing? It was a thing. The Daniel diet, and you can choose to model your diet like his, and that, and that's fine. But that your experience doesn't need to be everybody's experience. Is the point? So Jesus, we got to recognize, he came to set the captives free. He didn't he didn't come to set the captives free so that those captives could then follow the Jewish law, which they couldn't keep, and Jesus fulfilled. But we, he came to set them free. And I, I think this passage and the way it's broken up is beautiful in the sense that Paul says what God has done in you, so then it's not about what you are doing. So this concept, you have to become this Jew in order to be the Christian, is just not there. 
Um, Jesus comes to set us free so that we can be following Him and then be transformed by His grace. So, it's, and it's in that where, these, where those, like down to the very minute detail of the law, where it was given to us to encourage our um, everyday practices in life, that it would help us live more faithfully to Him so it would increase our worship. Well, as, as we come to the fulfillment, and we don't get that confused when we come to Jesus and not the shadow of Jesus, when we come to Him, He then has some sort of an effect on our daily living and how we worship. So the next question I want to look at is, is my experience authentic if it doesn't look like someone else's? Because this is what they're kind of doing here. So verse 18 says, let no one disqualify you, insisting an asceticism and on, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going into detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. So verse 16 said, let no one pass judgment on you. Verse 18 now says, let no one disqualify you. We're doing, in this passage, we've got to do some mirror reading, if you will, to see, um, can we understand what some of this Colossian heresy was? And if you can remember back when we set up the book, there, we talked about Paul addressing a, Colossians, a heresy that was going on in Colossians, but it was unclear exactly what that was, but seemed to be a mixture of several things. Well, that's what we were seeing here in this kind of mirror reading. He's addressing these things, which means, apparently, Somebody else is telling them these, uh, the, the things that he's saying, you know, don't do this. Well, somebody's telling them you ought to do this. So that's kind of how, what we're looking at here. Um, those previous verses warned against having to practice the elements of the Jewish faith in order to experience this new life in Christ. And then here, the example of someone having a subjective experience and then doubting the authenticity of your faith because you didn't have that exact same experience they did. This is what's in light for us now. So whether it is the worship of angels or the ex having the expectation of visions or being puffed up in the mind, the, the doubts set in when we do not hold fast to the head, which is Jesus. So we may desire a different experience for ourselves or feel inadequate because we haven't had the same experience as someone else. This can happen a lot. Uh, as I think most of you are aware, I hang out with all, all, I hang out with Christians of all flavors. I hang out with some sinners occasionally too. But I hang out with a lot of Christians of all kinds of different flavors. So everybody that I hang out with does not look just like me, nor do they act like me, nor do they think like me, and so on. Shortly after we came, here to Parkersburg, um, I joined this, I, I met up with this group and they were having a gathering and Becky and I attended this gathering. And then someone expressed very openly, uh, I mean like directly to us, once we like, you know, who are you, where you come from, what kind of church is that and all that stuff. And then in response, it was like, I sure am glad I got out of a liturgical church and got into a church where the Spirit's alive and well. And we, <laughs> so we get in the car and we're like, 
did, did that really happen? And of course the answer was yes. That really did happen. I am not lying to you from the pulpit here. This, this happened, and, but at the time, what do you know? I felt a little judged by my experience because that's exactly what was happening. This is what Paul's talking about. Somebody has a subjective experience, and then if yours is not like theirs, or is yours even authentic or real? Well, this is, and this is what is, is being warned about, and I, think, and I think we need to take note because we are, we are susceptible to doing the same thing with other people. Like, you know, can their faith be real because they don't do this, that, and the other thing as we do it? Like, if your faith looks different than mine, can it be real? Well, um, the, 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 the thing we have to come back to is this, like, how did we experience faith to begin with? And if it is not our doing, if it really is God who is the one who decides and regenerates us and brings us into this new faith, uh, this new life in Christ, then, and all we're doing is following and then sitting around saying, why me, Lord? Why did you bring me? I think that's the humility that is the right perspective. And then we recognize that, okay, how did I get, how did I become into, how did I come into this tradition? That too was by His hand, by His design, by His desire. Is He capable of saving people, bringing them into His family and having them into a different uh, experience different tradition where they experience things way differently than I do. And that answer has got to be yes. Because that's what the scriptures, the scriptures do not define these things. So we don't evaluate someone else's experience based on ours. And then, but that's, but Paul is saying, what, what, the, what the issue here is, is the Colossians were feeling pressured because other people were making them doubt their, the authenticity of their faith. And he's saying, don't let anyone disqualify you. Don't let anyone judge you. That your faith is placed in the truth of who God is and what He has done for you. So you hold on to that, and then you hold on to Christ, which is the head. So Christ, and the only time we get these things all messed up is when we don't hold to Him. So when, when we start thinking, it must, be, uh, it must be Jesus plus something. Jesus plus the liturgical calendar, Jesus plus any of the things that we do. Okay, that's not, that's just wrong. It's just Jesus. So when we add, if we don't want to be the ones adding to the gospel, and we don't want other people to be adding to the gospel, then making us doubt the authenticity of our faith. Once you hold fast to Jesus, then it's that because he's the head, this is like out of the body. So the connected thing where he is, he's the beginning, that kind of head, like headwaters in a, in a river. But he's also that that it's through our head, through our mind, what we think, what we hear, what we taste, that's going in and nourishing the body. So if we're feeding on Christ, he then nourishes us. He is the head of the body of Christ, him being that head. That's the kind of head we're talking about, where he's the one who leads us, feeds us, and nourishes us, and, can, and therefore governs the whole body. And it's when we hold fast to him, then we're not tossed about by every wind of doctrine or every other person's opinion of their subjective experience and then trying to get us to be convinced we 
have not experienced that. Now, the only, the only other thing I'd like to add in that is that I think a lot of times that you can hear uh, some exciting testimonies. And then, and then like, in our circles, I mean, in this church, and we've had these conversations where sometimes it's like, well, I don't have a very, I don't have, I don't have a very exciting testimony. Well, praise Jesus. That's what we're praying for. And for our children, we're praying that they don't have a very exciting testimony, that as they, as they pop out and we raise them up in the faith, that they come to know, like there is never, what do we say? There is never a day that they didn't know of the love of Jesus. And that may not be your experience. And, and then some of us that are storytellers plus have a pretty fascinating or miraculous kind of testimony you're like, wow, I wish I had it. No, you don't. You don't wish that you had a testimony like mine. Many of you do. But we hope and pray for our children. That they, we want boring testimonies for our children. We want them to grow up. And, and that thing where is in Celebrate Recovery, we have an alternating pattern where we listen to a testimony one night. And then the next time we meet, we hear from uh, a study. We, a lecture or a lesson, and uh, typically Bert's the guy that gives that, and, and, and a couple, or a couple of other people. Those are always good. The testimonies a lot of times are good, uh, very encouraging, but sometimes in the testimonies I am worn out because the testimonies go so much, and, and they're rather structured too, so it's not like free-for-alls typically that people have, but they're the the uh, the, the constant um, running from the Lord and the amount of energies that someone has gone through before he actually rescues them just can wear me out. And, when, and sometimes I think when you hear those things, you're like, okay, I, I didn't, that's not my story. So I think even just in that comparison, when, you're, when your path didn't follow theirs of that miraculous salvation, is your faith authentic? And let me assure you that it is back to the, what the Lord has done in you and not, it's, it's, not, um, it's not the reveling in sin that needs to be experienced and how great can we sin so we can see how great He can save us. So being raised up to actually love and follow the Lord is what we pray for. We're praying for boring testimonies. And that in that, that there will not be a lack of authenticity of the faith. People will come to know that their faith is very real because Jesus is real to them. So we, when we're hanging on to the head, when we're focusing on Him and what He has done, and we go back to the gospel before we work, we go back to justification before we go to sanctification, and we need to do that. That's where on a daily basis we're preaching the gospel to ourselves. We need to hear that we are sinners that we were and are being saved by what He has done, this thing that's outside of us, not because of who we are and what we're doing, but what He has done. And this is a freeing thing. I, so last week I, I, I sort of made the comment, I said something like, aren't you glad that you uh, have a preacher that will tell you you're a sinner? Well, there's, there's the, so there's the reality. It's one of the things that makes this church a little different than lots of churches in, in, that I have experienced. I'll just bring this into my own, my own testimony and not lay this on you. But there's a reality where we need desperate. We are desperate. We are a desperate people. We need to hear from God on a, on a regular basis. So 
It's not that it's not that the world out there is the good and safe place. We know it is not. Even home gets crazy and whacked. Well, we come here and we hear that we are sinners who are in the process of being saved by what God has done and is doing in you. And then we have hope to go back into the world. So when, when you have opportunity to invite, and we all need to be inviting people to come because this message is too good. It has been, has been squandered in our evangelicalism that has overtaken America. That message has been squandered for a long time. So this is not, there's nothing unique about me. I mean, I'm kind of weird in some ways. But I'm not this original guy who's coming up with this message. All I'm doing is saying, this is, the, this is like the Reformation again. In the sense, it's why I appreciate the Reformation so much. At the time of the Reformation, the gospel had gotten lost. In our world and today, the gospel has gotten lost. The evangelical American church preaches how to become a good person. And why would you come to church anyway? The bad people I know think the church judges them. So, I'm a good person, so I'll go to church so I can get better. That's, that is so removed from the gospel. So when this truth comes through God's word to our ears and in our hearts, this is where that circumcision of our heart happens. So this is what makes this unique. So when you're running into your friends and you want to have an invite, you say, come, taste and see if the Lord is good. Come with us to church sometime and hear how we're sinners. We're all sinners. But by God's free grace... He is the one who is saving us. And that's where I think once we hear this, it's kind of like the, where we're feeding on this gospel in a physical form on a weekly basis. When we go without, it's missed. And it's, and it's not missed because I'm that great preacher. It's missed because I'm showing you and we, whoever's standing in this pulpit, is showing you how great and glorious our God is. So when, so when we miss, when we're not able to be here, we long to get back because this is where we become recalibrated and normalized again. So that when we go back into our whacked out, whatever it is, world, family, whatever, workplace, we have something solid on which to stand and evaluate all the stuff, that's, the craziness that's going on around us. And this, this is the thing that roots us. It gives us our identity. It's how we view the world. It's because of what He has done in us as He brings us into His family. So that was a little more than you cared to hear, but this is what I think is a beautiful thing. So I should not make light of the fact that I'm the, the preacher that tells you you're a sinner. We should actually celebrate that, that throughout our whole the, the process of our services, we get to hear the fact that we are in need of a Savior every week. And then we are reassured of what the Savior has done and is doing in our lives. So for that, we got to remember that Christ is quite capable of saving to the uttermost. So we evaluate through God's word what um, he has done in us and not by subjective experience and having somebody else doubt our faith or making us doubt. They can doubt our faith. I don't care. We, they don't make us doubt our faith or question the authenticity of our faith because we're resting on the head. We're resting on what Christ has done and we're not resting on Jesus plus anything. And when you hold firmly to that kind of gospel, it will become life-changing and reassuring to you and restore your hope. So cling to Christ, our, who is our head, and he will deliver you safely home. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.
Let's pray. Lord Jesus,